This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, Digital Wildcatters? Welcome back to the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. Really quickly, it's the week of NAEP. It's finally here. It's the busiest week for us, uh, especially in the upstream sector. Uh, while some of you are in town, we all know that the best business is done at the after parties. So that being said, we've partnered up with a few of our buddies in the energy tech community, Trax, Mineralware, Grouper, and Well Database for the NAEP after party you don't want to miss. It's going to be at BBVA Dynamo Stadium on Thursday, uh, February 6th, starts at 6 p.m., the great Texas country legend Wade Bowen is going to be performing, and we will be doing a live roundtable discussion with some of the energy tech founders in the space. Uh, this event is invite only, and wristbands are limited, so click the link in the description for more details, and we will see you guys there. This week, we sat down with Justin Love of Black Buck Resources. We've been lucky that the last few guests that we've had on the show have been really, really great storytellers. And we loved how hearing in just the last 18 months, uh, Black Buck was able to raise some capital, scale to over 30 people, and they've almost completed the largest saltwater disposal facility in the U.S. with a throughput of 100,000 barrels of water per day. Uh, So great story, really, really great episode. As a lot of you might have heard, we've started piloting some ad spots on the show. Helps us keep doing what we're doing. As you may or may not know, the Oil & Gas Startups podcast started off as a side project for Colin and I to tell the stories of our founder friends in oil and gas. We're almost at 100,000 downloads later, uh, and we've really built a thriving, close-knit community of passionate oil and gas professionals just like yourself that want to continue to disrupt our industry through constant innovation. Uh, Since the podcast has kind of inadvertently become a free business development tool for our guest, we figured it made sense to allow other companies we believe in to also benefit from the exposure to our audience. Uh, So for the first time ever, Digital Wildcatters is now working with select brands to create bespoke audio campaigns to drive a deeper connection with the audience. If you're interested, simply hit the link in the description below to schedule a call. What is going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. Man, it's Friday. Let's get right into it. Let's get into it. Who Who do we we got? We got Justin, and I'm assuming it's Love, but I've completely butchered <laughs> normal names before. So Justin Love. It's actually Love. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Love. Uh, that's, that, that's bad when you've butchered so many names on the <laughs> intro. They're like, Love, Love. I don't know. Man, I, call, I called Justin Godier, Justin Gaither for like six months, but he was so nice and Canadian, he just never corrected me. <laughs> <laughs> Until Colin was like, yeah, Godier. And I was like, who's Godier? And I was like, you mean Gaither? And he's like, no, dude, it's Canadian. And I was like, oh, it's French. <laughs> so uh, Justin uh, is the CEO and president of Black Buck Resources. So Justin, really quickly, I want you to just tell us what you guys do. That's yeah. right. In, in short, we're a water midstream company. So relatively new segment of the oil and gas sector. Um, we do all things water management. We gather up the wastewater coming from oil well production, oil and gas well production, uh, and either inject it via saltwater disposal wells to get rid of it, or we will treat it to be reused in fracking. Are you guys concentrated in a certain area? Yeah, largely in the Permian. Okay. Um, our services arm has worked in as far as you know Wyoming and, and Oklahoma, but we're really infrastructure-wise and, and most of our base of operations is cored up in the Permian. 
Okay. So in midstream water infrastructure, you got several different things. I mean, there's pipelines, there's trucks, there's saltwater disposal, injection facilities. Are you guys involved with all of the above or one subsector? Yeah, all of the above minus the trucking. Okay, so um, no trucking. Yeah, so we don't do anything with trucks. Um, everything we do is, is piped. Now, we do have truck lanes at some of our saltwater disposal facilities. And, you know, we have trucking customers, but we don't participate in that side of the business. Got you. So it's really, you know, if you look at the private equity or the capital side of things, everyone's got their eyes on midstream water, right? And rightfully so. You look at some of the statistics coming out of the Permian Basin and, you know, the projected water output we'll have over the next, uh, you know, four to five years is just ungodly high. So everyone's rushing in to um, invest in these in these. We produce water. way more water than we do oil. Yeah. Absolutely. By a long shot. Yeah, I think it was. Uh, I was at some midstream water conference. I can't remember who said it. Someone from Solaris uh, made a joke that you know a lot of people say that these are water wells that just happen to put out a little bit of oil. So I think a lot of people outside the industry don't understand the water capacity mm-hmm. issues that we have in disposal, and there's a lot happening in the recycling space. So it's definitely a lot of activity. How long have you guys been around, Justin? So Black Bug Resources in name has been around for just over 18 months. So um, we genesis really out of the, the sale of a prior company that I owned with partners called Zedia Process Solutions. Um, that was, I believe, July 10th, maybe 12th of 2018. What was the name of that company? Uh, Zedia Process Zedia? Solutions with an X. Yeah. Oh, okay. People call it. Xzedia, Xpedia, <laughs> whatever they can do. <laughs> but um, so, so we're relatively new, but in a, in a relatively new sector, and so it's kind of like you know you don't you don't have many very experienced water midstream players. Uh, there's there's a couple of big guys that have been around, but re- I mean most of us are in the last decade mm-hmm. as, as a stretch. But those efforts really go back all the way to around 2014. Um, it's really just a, a continued evolution of the same process. We started mm-hmm. as a technology company. Um, when when shale hit, there was just a spotlight on water, um, just due to the nature of the water intense the water intensiveness of, of unconventional production, both inbound and outbound. And so that spotlight led to a lot of opportunities to explore new water water technology. It's funny because we really went full circle back now to like the conventional old industrial <laughs> techniques, but it, it put that spotlight there. And so we had a, a technology company, uh, Zedia, that, that, that focused, basically took advantage of that spotlight to go into the old conventional fields and um, improve, you know, cost and capacity without CapEx, you know, in limited CapEx situations in old fields. And so we were operating and you know, providing solutions in, in you know, California, Brazil, offshore, you know, Gulf of Mexico, Indonesia, um, Middle East. We've done work in Europe. So it was largely this international, um, wherever there had historically been production, how can we improve water management? Mm-hmm. And that was, people were looking at it for the first time in 50 plus years because of shale, even though we weren't operating there. Yeah. And then you had shale kind of ha- had a bit of a downturn. Um, as we all experienced, you know, around 2015, 2016. Um, and, you know, that was the only game in town was conventional. So <laughs> it's a good thing we were doing that. But as it started to come back, we, we wanted to get back into 
participating in our backyard in Texas. I mean, flying to Jakarta for sales meeting isn't the easiest thing to do <laughs> as a startup, right? You can't just pack up and, and take <laughs> off for the day, right? Yeah. And, and so, um, you know, we traded in our cars for pickup trucks and drove out and got a storage unit in Odessa and picked up some new kind of pond management technology and aeration technology and, um, you know, went out offering services, pond management services and, um, so let's let's back it up a little bit. So you told us about uh, ZDS. So we'll we'll get to there. But before that, what what were you doing? What's what's your background? You know, are you from the oil and gas industry originally? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I went to Virginia Tech. I graduated with an engineering degree. Um, I think it's got to be the first person we've had on the show from yeah, Virginia probably. Tech. That's there's, not common. There's, you know, there, I think there's, I'd run the alumni association down here. I think it was like 2000 of us, believe it or not. Really? But, uh, compared to however many people are in Houston, it's not that large. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, when you compare it to Aggies, you know, it's, yeah, it's probably I mean, not that many. I, I think 90% of my employees are Aggies yeah. at this point. <laughs> for, for better or for worse. Yeah. Gig em. Um, I, I like to say Virginia Tech is like A and M, but without the cowboy boots and two stepping. But you know, very similar. You know, we have a. It's like A and M without the Colt. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a core. You know, we all wear our rings, and uh, it's a in, very. Well, it's funny because I saw your ring when you walked in, and I assumed that it was yeah. an Aggie ring. So yeah, it's very that, similar. That, that threw me off a bit now. <laughs> yeah, it's either it's either an Aggie ring or a Texas Tech ring. I think is what most people think, but um, no, it's a it's a hokey. Uh, so I had. You know, nobody, it, ironically, my, my stepfather was a, a wireline engineer way back pre-86. Oh, okay. But I don't think he ever spoke to me about it my whole growing <laughs> up. But, you know, he, yeah, I lived in Houston at one at one point, yeah. right? And then he was there for 86. He probably wanted to erase it from his mind when yeah. the city practically yeah. emptied out. That was a rough time. <laughs> yep. But uh, it was one of those things, like, you know, you know, I was destined to go work in D.C. or Northern Virginia for, like, Deloitte or Booz Allen or one of these guys, and... Um, like all my peers in industrial engineering. And then there was a career fair and I'm kind of wandering around, no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up and uh, came across, across what I, what I thought was Schlumberger. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's, that's interesting. You know, they got kind pictures of, of fast food restaurant is this? <laughs> yeah. Okay. What kind of burgers are you making? No, they, they, uh, you know, basically informed me that it was Schlumberger. That was the first thing they did and that I should make sure I called it that. <laughs> But they, they had these, you know, pictures of helicopters and offshore rigs and mountain ranges and jungles. And I thought, wow, that's really exciting, you know. And um, I had, you know, having never really traveled at all as a kid, you know, we would we barely made our beach vacation to North Carolina from Virginia. You know? Yeah. I was like, you know, that excitement, that allure kind of drew me in. And so while I was still in school, I actually interned in Houston at Slumberjay and then from from there ended up coming back after graduation so i'm all i've ever done is energy um mostly on the service side through slumberger after going through the advanced program there which is this really great uh three-year program you go through and i mean from that you're, you're constantly in training i mean from geology all the way through to refining it's it's incredible a uh, great place to start your career um but you know, once getting through that, you know, I was looking for a little more fast pace, more responsibility. Um, it's funny because I've always ratcheted smaller in my career steps as I as I kept going to the size of the company. Mm -hmm. Slumberjay being over 100,000 people at the time. Um, found an opportunity kind of randomly. You know, you always back through the biggest doors at a water company right as shale was about to become prominent and, and there was this water spotlight. So they had a small energy business focused on 
mostly downstream, based out of here, Houston, Conroe, uh, actually. And um, we were basically selling these consumables, you know, oil, water, separation, uh, water filtration, mm -hmm. consumable media, cartridges and whatnot uh, in the Gulf Coast refineries and, and really all over the world. I mean, I think they were $10 billion, 30,000 employees at the time. Still a Fortune 500 player, but, you know, 25% of a slumbership. I stepped down from slumbership. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I got in as a project manager. I was really interested in management and projects and, um, you know, was sent off to the Middle East to deal with, you know, punch lists on whatever equipment we had built. And it was always gas plants or refineries, petrochemical. And I didn't like it, you know, downstream is not sexy, right? Especially <laughs> as a shale boom is kicking off and like <laughs> your friends are driving around and like, Maseratis and stuff because they all work in upstream and you're like in a refinery in Ross Lafon, Qatar like getting yelled at by an engineering firm and so I uh, I in, in a hallway one day there's this VP of, of I forget what he was he's a VP of the whole platform his, his name's Gene Rudolph uh, kind of became a mentor of mine and um, you know he wasn't my boss at the time he was probably two or three levels up and I was like, you know, we should get into upstream. You know, there's this shale boom. We're a water company, you know, you know, Pentair at every wellhead, you know, and kind of kept walking down the hall. And then I think it was like three months later, he's like, okay, you're our new global market development manager for upstream energy. And so Pentair launched an upstream energy business. Um, so I, I just had this incredible experience of one working in 30 some countries, you know, that dream travel that I had envisioned in that career fair kind of came true. Uh, I don't know if it's 30 or 35, I mean, in that range, I mean, anywhere you can think of that has oil and gas. Um, I had a company that was doing very well cash-wise at the time in Pentair, a lot of resources. I think there were 28 salespeople globally that I could work with to try to implement what we, we called it, moving our technology into an adjacent market. So we're in a refinery, removing solids and oil from water, oil from glycol. It was logical that we could take those similar technologies and slide them over into the next adjacent segment, which is upstream mm -hmm. and uh, started that effort, had some success. We did projects in, I mean, Colombia, Egypt, we're running lots of different pilots in the Permian on shale. Um, I got to be involved as much as I wanted to, you know, from like thinking about how the brochures were going to be, because it was, it was really from zero to a full business platform, but yeah. with unlimited resources relatively. Mm -hmm. Right. I could travel at any point, you know, and so I had this great experience of, of building something and come from an entrepreneurial family. So I'd say like the bug had started to been seeded <coughs> uh, or the idea, I should say. I mean, so as part of my job there, I, um, I started a task force, produce, produce water task force. And that was basically a collaboration between one of our businesses that was run out of Anskede in the Netherlands that was a membrane business and our little energy business here in Conroe, how can we globally work together to better address produce water with technology through, you know, through leverage our, our Pentair footprint. And that got me in the room on a lot of M&A activity, you know, mm -hmm. just kind of as eventually I went to enough conferences where I started speaking at them, you know, for, you know, I had, you know, I'd meet, I called every friend I knew that worked at Woodmac or whoever. And I, you know, I'd invite them to a bar and I'd bring a notebook or an iPad and I would sit there and ask them questions about upstream water. And learned everything I could. I was a sponge. And um, so I was speaking these conferences and they invited me into the M&A process as kind of a subject matter person. And 
I'm like, who are, who are these guys, you know, the other side of the table, these, these investment bankers? I'm like, aren't they? <laughs> so at, at the end of it, I'm like, wait, they're just salesmen? And I'm like, those are some nice shoes. That's a nice car. <laughs> like, these are very, very, very highly paid salesmen. And, and I, don't, I don't mean to diminish what they do because now I have a, a full respect for everything in banking, not including, not even, even beyond the, the work ethic. But at the time, as a young engineer, I'm like, That's, I'm going to do this. <laughs> This is great. So I actually, that at that point, I had started the the, the process of what became Love Energy Advisors, LEA, um, a passive company that I actually still have today. You know, it holds some equity, basically a boutique investment bank and consulting firm. And so I didn't know about FINRA or the SEC like, as I got started. So I, I quickly learned there are laws around <laughs> trying to raise money. I, I guess I hadn't seen Wolf of Wall Street by then, but... Um, yeah, I learned a little something called broker dealer <laughs> license. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's a whole you know series seven you know sixty two whatever the broker dealer is and so fun like basically fumbled my way through all that and uh, was able to persevere in, in getting a lot of workflow and closing a couple of deals um, and in that process I mean I was working like an investment banker yeah. you know twenty four hours a day yeah just trying you know trying to get deals done and there were some windfalls and then there was some, you know, times of, of, uh, uh, little. And so I had, by then I had had, um, both of my children who are now, um, six and seven. And so I had a family, you know, I had a mortgage and I had this business that was, you know, going up and down, up, up and unpredictable. Down. Yeah. And at some point somebody had suggested I read this book called built to sell. I read the book and, I kind of like looked up and looked around, looked in the mirror and I'm like, wow, like I'm, there's no value in this business. I, I've created a job yeah. for myself. Yeah. And so there was, there was just, there was no scale factor and there were so many parallels to the book. It was almost unreal. It was like, you know, we were trying to do, be all things to all people. All my clients wanted all of my time. I couldn't find the right people to, to scale the business. And so I, I had sold uh, 45% of it by that time to a, a partner and he had opened up an office in, in KL. And so we were kind of, we were dual hemisphere. I mean, I was traveling. It's really fun. But what I realized is that I wasn't creating enterprise value that I could later retire on. Yeah. Um, it, it always was, required your time, right? Yeah, it was hard. Yeah, yep. I mean, it was all, it was, it was all encompassing. And so, um, yeah, I mean, we, we, we put our heads together. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, I don't think a lot of people understand. <laughs> Jake's over there smiling because we've been through the same exact story. That whole exercise. Yeah, yeah. And we learned a lot of valuable lessons really quickly. Yeah, and, uh, you know, people don't understand when you start a consulting business or advisory business, there's a lot of good money. And I think, uh, who was it? Uh, oh, uh, Ambient. Um uh, Let's see. Uh, Robarts? Yeah. Which oh, one? the Robart was, Brothers. Was it Alex or Chris yeah. that came on the show, though? Uh, Alex came on the show. Okay. Yeah. So Alex talked about this very thing, too. <laughs> they may have been talking about me because they were early associates. That They actually mm, were, my, they were my first client. Uh, the One of the companies they founded and later sold. Yeah, Waterlands. Digital, digital H2O. Oh, Digital H2O. Yeah, yeah, was, yeah. Waterlands later was a client. Okay. But, <laughs> small di- world. but Digital H2O <laughs> was my first 
See, this is everything's coming full circle yeah. now. <laughs> it, it was you, you get enough people on the podcast, every everything's going to be intertwined. <laughs> so I think it was so. Yeah, they were probably if they ever described these things to you, they were probably yeah. like Justin and his you know crappy business. <laughs> well, no, they were talking about the, uh, them being consultants, and I guess um, you know they had a little consulting business, and he talked about the same things. It just it wasn't scalable, and it always required their time. And they realized that there, hey, there was no enterprise value that you know they could exit off of and, and live off of. It was always going to require their time and attention. And I think that's, you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs go that route and they do it, and it's a good way to provide income. But at the end of the day, you're just you're making yourself a job, and it's you're, extremely you're billing, Yeah, your billing rate per hour is fantastic, but your constant need for more hours is always going to be there and mm-hmm. we could never find, we were always the bottleneck uh, because we could never find replacements for ourselves to do the work. And that, so therefore we weren't able to scale. That's the exact, that is the exact paradox that, that yeah. I had awoken to. Mm-hmm. And so in that, you know, and, and at the, the, I guess, influence of my partner who also was feeling that as the, the person I was trying to get to replace me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he, he, you know, he, we had this client, small family business with some water patents. You know, it was a lifestyle business, you know, 20 million revenue, 20 people type deal and, on the East Coast. And they had these water technology patents and they worked in selling chemicals and like pulp and paper and just general water treatment stuff. And so we said, you know, he was like, we need to, you know, spin this out. Let's get some technology. So we had the conversation and um, decided to spin out what became Zedia Process Solutions took those products and, and developed a couple of more and then started that journey that I kind of jumped into earlier. So what exactly did Zedia offer? What was the, the, cause you said is more of a tech, was it more of a tech focused company? Yeah. So, um, I was, I was talking about the conventional space and so there's really two, three like applications that we were focused on uh, outside of shale. One is offshore discharge. So, when you're producing oil and gas offshore, you have the same processes where your water is separate from your oil and gas. And mm-hmm. that water is generally cleaned to a EPA 1664 standard. You get under 29 ppm oil and grease, you know, no sheen. You know, there's a whole set of regulations, but you, you just dump it out dump to the it, ocean. Dump right? it back in the ocean. The salt yeah. water that you produce goes back into the ocean, you know, cleaned. And most of the technologies and and as i was forming that 2014 i had a brief stint in a in a company that was doing that and i thought poorly and expensively and um so we we had this technology that turned out to be great in that it had higher capacity per basically for oil per per cartridge call it so you have you know this vessel with these cartridges in it and it's going to suck up oil well you know where where the incumbent may only get one pound of oil we were going to get four so it was a product like it's like a membrane type um, filter the, or something. It was a, and I mean the patents out there. So this was a, it, you know, it was classified as an organoclay, not to be confused with like say Setco's organoclay, which is similar, but um, it's essentially a, um, it's a, bent, a bentonite, I believe, clay that they were mining in Georgia or something like that. Oh, okay. And then they would this this company, the specialty chemical company, would chemically modify it so that you have this ultra high surface area and kind of relatively mushy, stable structure. Yeah. And you'd put it like almost like granular. We called it the dirt. So it looked like a little canister full of dirt. Yeah. And you'd flow it through and that oil would just get trapped 
on this very oleophilic chemical coating of the surface area. Interesting. Yeah, and so like one spoonful of this stuff would have like a football field of surface area. You know, it's all about surface area and filtration, separation. Yeah. And so you'd have all that area for oil to be trapped on. Whereas the incumbent were more like filters that were dipped in some kind of oleophilic uh, additive, much like what we would have had. Uh, but they were lower surface area and, um, you know, less solids tolerant because they weren't, you know, loose media that you could kind of blow out. And, mm -hmm. and so our, our value proposition was, hey, you know, for the relative, relative same cost, you can put in your existing system, you know, you've got the hardware, put the software, my cartridge in, yeah. and you're going to get, call it double life. Yeah. And so, you know, in a cost constrained kind of fixed environment uh, of, conventional production you, all you can, can really control is your bottom line yeah you know your, your revenue is not going up really you're not like popping wells like in shale and stuff so um it, it resonated pretty well um but it's also really hard to to find who you sell to to get on an offshore chevron yeah. platform in the gulf of mexico yeah, they, i mean getting it, pilot getting pilot projects <coughs> for any type of new technology is not going to be easy right yeah it was really difficult it was i think it was um I don't know. Well, I don't want I don't know if I can say it on the air. It was our first customer, but <laughs> let's just say it was one of the technology venture groups from one of the majors gotcha. that, yeah. that got it started. And from there, um, we started looking at steam floods and water floods. So these are the other two applications. I said there was three, um, steam floods and water floods. You have similar challenge. It's like a factory and it just runs. You've got a certain amount of oil and a ton of water. Yeah. And so that water is either going to be turned into steam or, or re-injected. If it's being re-injected, you want to clean it enough to not occlude your injection wells, right? You want to keep it flowing. Mm -hmm. And so historically they use nutshell filters for that. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and for steam floods, it's going to go into a steam generator, which, you know, you're going to have to clean it and remove the hardness. And so yeah. when you're softening, softening resin, you know, it's really expensive and you want to protect those softening beds from the same contaminants you were protecting the yeah. injection from. Okay. Yeah. So the idea is protection. And so what they use is walnut shell filters. I guess 70, 80 years ago, somebody figured out like, hey, like crushed walnut shells, <laughs> not just crushed walnut shells, but black walnuts, yeah, apparently like, like English black, <laughs> like not the wild, you know, or no, like I think they're grown in like Missouri, actually. English walnuts don't work as well as like the Missouri black, apparently. Um, Sometimes you just want like, how did someone figure this out? Well, there are like three SPE papers on walnut shells. I think I'm quoted in like one or two of them. <laughs> Uh, a guy, uh, what's his name? Hank Rollins, actually. He's, he's written, two of them are contributed. Uh, but brilliant guy. And he did a lot of his testing on walnuts. Like, the theory of walnuts is they're very hard and durable. Yeah. And they're not necessarily oleophilic or hydrophilic. They're kind of like impartial. And so if you stack them in a bed and run oily water through them, dirty oily water, it'll remove the oil and the solids. But it can also easily be like released in like a backwash yeah and so there's i mean there are millions and it's just funny like millions got, of pounds yeah. of nutshells out there you got all this um you know just high tech shit out there that costs so much <laughs> money to develop and it's like no, i got a bag of crushed up walnut shells here yeah. I mean, you use it in your drilling fluids too i mean you got nut plugs yeah. and stuff like yeah, that you know i mean you know so walnuts are the real MVP of oil and gas it, operations. It, it was probably like laying around because of drilling or something, and then somebody tried it on water. But we had a product, I mean, to, to shorten the story, that it was using that chemical modification on the age-old walnut media. And what it did was it made it more hydrophobic, oleophilic. And so 
you could run higher what we call flux rates like flow per square foot of media for surface area <coughs> um, cross-sectional surface area and so what what that meant is they could get more throughput with better water quality out of their existing assets so if you're running in Bakersfield California and you inject you know 400,000 barrels a day worth of steam uh, water equivalent of into steam um, you don't you know, your water cuts going up you're dealing with more water you know, you don't necessarily have five million bucks to go buy two nutshell filters. So, if you were to pay an extra hundred thousand dollars for media, now all of a sudden you got the equivalent of two nutshells per every nutshell you have. Yeah. So, so that was the value proposition. Okay. Um, and y'all did y'all did pretty well with that. I'm assuming you were worldwide with it, um, which is also interesting. Why did you guys take a global approach instead of staying in the United States? Because I'm sure that just makes everything. 10 times more complicated, right? I mean, even just from the travel Tax perspective, taxes, I, that's, I think like legal structures. I'm like, fuck man, that's gotta be I remember, complicated. I, I've read a few tax treaties between like say U S <laughs> and Malaysia for yeah. sure. Um, no, it made it complicated from an accounting perspective and, and, and also logistically. Um, but it was, you know, I'd like to say, you know, we did it cause it was strategic and it worked, but I mean, there, there's really two factors. One is that's where our relationships were. Yeah. Me and my partner were both kind of global market development BD guys from big companies. And yeah. so, you know, I could call a guy in Australia and, and go have a beer. That or, makes sense. You know, yeah. And so it's, where, it's who we knew. And in the U.S., um, I mean, we were going to California. I mean, in Texas, we like to think of them as another country still. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's international travel. <laughs> But yeah, I mean the the tax work there was yeah in <laughs> itself. But it was you know there just wasn't any use for us in in unconventional. Yeah. And, and if you look at like the water floods of West Texas and stuff, they're just a lot more kind of shoestring, and they weren't they didn't care about technology. And when it came to shale, and this is what really evolved us again, they didn't want products and technology. Shale wanted service. Mm -hmm. And so if you're an unconventional producer, you don't care who's got the best mousetrap. You care who's going to solve your problem. Yeah. And and that means they have to come do it physically. And ultimately, in that realization, um, and, yeah, we had a botched sale of the company along the way. Um, a certain very brand name, large group that I won't mention. Um, we had moved into their offices and everything, and then our deal sponsor kind of left. And oh, it's wow. one of those things like, thank God, you know, Yeah. because we ended up with such a better position. But we were like, okay, we're going to focus on revenue. We're a technology company. This travels. It's just, again, back to the scale problem. Here we are. Um, we basically moved into oilfield service. And shale had come back, so it was opportunistic, really. Yeah. But let's go out. We'll, we'll start doing pond management. We picked up another technology. Um, we were at an A&M event where I usually used to speak at the Global Petroleum Research Institute twice a year. They did a water workshop. But we found these guys, new technology. We started going out and manage ponds in the Permian. But to do that, like I had gotten to in the beginning, we you know traded in our vehicles for pickup trucks, got a storage unit, started sleeping in our pickup trucks. and That's know, a real well-filled life. Yeah, fusion. Yeah. I was fusion welding. Most people don't believe it, like in the company now or, you know, it, I think now the perception of me is like, you know, corporate guy, but I'm like, you know. Like I, you, don't, you don't actually work. I, yeah, I, I was like worried about rattlesnakes, you know. Like that was a daily concern as I got out of my truck when I woke up in the yeah. morning in my truck. And we, we got some MSAs with some big players out there. Uh, fortunately, just, you know, a few guys in our trucks and a storage unit in Odessa. It's almost like a, you could make a, a movie out of it. It's, but like the, it's like the 
Apple and Google stories of starting in the garage, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Start with a storage unit out in West Texas. But I mean, shit, what year was this? This was, uh, you said 2000. Oh, so this would have been really between 16 and 18, yeah. all the way up until we funded in yeah, July man. of 18. So you see rent prices for shop space out there. It's much cheaper to get you a storage unit and operate out of that than it is to go rent something off of mm-hmm. I-20. Oh, yeah. I mean, we shared hotel rooms. We did the whole thing. We'd sleep on our customers' couches if we had to. <laughs> and um, eventually, we had a few million dollars in orders. And, you know, we were like three guys, two trucks, and a storage unit. And so um, I was like, you know, I need, to, I need to go raise some money. I had successfully done it through LEA yeah. for other folks. Um, and I got to critically thinking about it. And what I realized was the writing on the wall was that, you know, what I kept telling myself was he who owned the pipe owned he who owns the pipe will own the treatment. Mm-hmm. And it's so like being a treatment service company standalone, I felt like was a, you know, there was a path, but it was painful and it ended in, you know, a brick wall. I thought, you know, if I'm thinking long-term, I'm going to raise capital or think big, something I had, I mean, if you go back to my notes from, you know, 2014, I was always thinking about water midstream and, um, folks had started to do it. You know, water bridge was, was around and, Mm-hmm. couple others and uh, i said you know let's let's go to private equity and let's we've evolved from technology to service let's let's evolve all the way let's let's be a total water management company and that means we can fund design build and operate water infrastructure and so black buck became the you know we couldn't do it as zedia process solutions although the core team was still there we really we we had to the service mentality is great and midstream companies should have that a lot of them don't uh, but there's a, there's a certain level of sophistication and EMP type uh, experience that you need to have in order to mm-hmm. develop. I mean, getting right of ways and land agreements, understanding geology, and um, it's it's extremely complex. The same challenges an EMP company would overcome, just in reverse. We're putting water in, right? Yeah. Um, and so we 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 grabbed some EMP folks onto the team, raised the funds, sold Zedia, and and Blackbuck became what is the company today. So Zedia still exists. It's a subsidiary at Blackbuck now. Oh, okay. and, and so it sells products globally. And it's a small part of what we do. Um, one of our, our big challenges at Blackbuck is, you know, I sold it as a advantage, which it is, right? Like water people solving water problems. We're not midstream finance guys that ran out of places to put gas processing plants. So we want to do water because it's the next easiest thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, we actually, you know, water can't be flared. It can't be compressed. You know, it's not gas. <laughs> And so, like, the fundamental understanding of water, treating water, the challenges of water in the oil field are at our core. And now it's, you know, it's a great thing for us because we have some great projects now that that have really genesis on the back of that. But at the same time, some of the perception is that, you know, we're still water technology guys. And so 2020, like, a big focus for me is, you know, getting out here on these podcasts and letting our story be told as much as my personal story. It's a personal story, right? I mean... As much mm-hmm. as it is anything, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, the Black Book story. But the the new goal is to let everybody know, like, hey, we're we're sophisticated midstream operator. You know, we have very very sophisticated operations because our operations are the flow assurance of EMP producers. So if you if you can't get rid of your water, you got to shut your well in. That's not a big. I mean, it's not a small deal. Yeah, you know? yeah. I've um, when we were talking to a lot of S. SWD operators um, mm-hmm. back last year. That's one big thing that someone told me is, you know, if you have a big EMP client 
and you have a problem with your SWD facility and it shuts down, you put that operator in a bind because if they have nowhere for their water to go, they have to shut in. And so it becomes a compounding problem, kind of a, you know, domino effect. So it's That's very, right. you know, critical to the infrastructure mm -hmm. for EMPs to be able to have somewhere to send that water to. So do you guys, you said that you had, you started off with three people and before we got on the mic, you said you're up to how many employees now? Was it 17? Is that what you said? No. So, I mean, overall across the company. So we yeah. have offices. So in Houston, we have, well, two offices, you know, will be one office as of Monday. Yeah. Um, we have an office in Midland, Odessa, right there by the airport. And then we have Dallas offices. But all in all, we're, we're approaching 50 people. 50 uh, people. Pretty quickly. Okay. Yeah. I don't know where I pulled 17 So you said eight, 18 months and you guys are at 50 people? More or less, yeah. Man. You call it 42. Like, I don't know the number yeah. as of today, <laughs> but, you know, and, and I will say that, you know, most of that is full-time, but we do have full-time 1099s as well. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not counting, like, you know, we're, we're drilling the Permian's largest commercial disposal well right now. Really? Yeah, 100,000 barrel a day injection well. And, wow. you know, 23 people live and work at that site. Yeah. Right, but, you know, I'm not really going to count them as, as employees per se, although, yeah, you know, like the contracted company man and, and a lot of these experts, you're going to keep them within your fold and, and move yeah. them on from project to project. But, yeah. You know, there's still 1099 day rate type yeah. guys, your construction superintendent, your head inspector, you know, yeah. you know, all the guys it takes to drill and build pipes and facilities. And what, what does the makeup of your team look like? I'm just interested because you said that essentially you guys are doing everything that an EMP does except backwards, right? You're injecting it. So you're taking a lot of people from EMP backgrounds. You know, is that, is that a lot of landmen? Is it engineers? You know, what is, what is your full-time team look well, like? You touched on two of them. Yeah. I mean, I'd say that, you know, when we were building our team, um, you know, starting from those first few, we really focused on that development capability. So a lot of, you know, engineering analytics think like an analyst, you know, we have a guy that we got out of, of Barclays, you know, an investment mm -hmm. banking analyst, uh, just incredible talent at rolling up type curves into financial spreadsheets. Basically what, when we're dealing with our customers, we need to know from our, from our own perspective from scratch, how valuable we feel that rock is and what they're going to do. Are they going to drill it? If they do drill it, how much are they going to drill it? And when they do drill it that much, how much water comes out? Mm -hmm. um, so we really had to, we build things from scratch. So our first investment was in our development capability. So you have, you know, the financial analyst types, the yeah. guys that roll up the type curves. Then you have development engineers who are the guys that are, you know, doing the GIS mapping and, um, you know, forming your type curves and looking at data from all over the basin to, to kind of roll into your models. Yeah. Um, so we, we, we juiced that first, like made that team just second to none, led by a guy that uh, was a, a founding partner who joined out of an EMP, was part of our evolution, really. Um, Sam Oliver, our chief commercial officer, just second to none in that, in that game of development. Uh, from there, I mean, then it was, you know, you've got all this activity. Your back office balloons pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> you, you don't want it to, you know, but you end up with, you yeah. know, there's just like accountants and clerks and like, you know, like, you're just like, well, where are all these people coming from? But uh, apparently there's there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes. I no, guess there definitely is. It's a, if your administrative is going up on the back end, I mean, I guess it's a sign of good things. It's a good problem to have. Well, and then the, the last thing that we've we've been focused on is is really the operational excellence of the group because <clears throat> you can have a couple of disposal wells especially like trucked stations mm -hmm. if they go down so what right the trucks have to drive to the next one you aren't shutting anybody in um but 
you know, as we partner with EMPs and become that integrated water midstream player that that is the new sector, and and flow assurance is so important, we can't settle for anything less than ninety nine percent uptime. So we could have had the greatest development team developed a great deal. Now we know how to account for whatever it is we're spending to go, you know, build a thirty million dollar infrastructure project or whatever it is. Yeah. What about you know? When, when the music starts and it's time to, you know, take water. Um, so, you know, we just, we just recruited a, a guy. He was at a, at a major public Permian group. He was their general manager of the Permian VP of operations. And so we've brought him in and he's been putting his own flavor on how we scorecard ourselves and how we make sure that we never go down, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's kind of, our team looks like an EMP in that way. And as part of that development team, you mentioned land. I mean, so obviously land is an everyday part of, of what we do. We, yeah. we partner with landowners. We have to achieve right, uh, acquire right of way all the time. You know, we're always looking at right of way. We're always proactively filing uh, disposal permits and areas of interest. Yeah. You know, so. Um so from a technology perspective, you know, on your pipelines and your facilities, are you guys deploying any type of technology? You know, I've seen companies out there that are um, automating SWD facilities and, mm -hmm. and things of that nature. Are you guys really, do you use any technology as an edge or yeah, else philosophy? Absolutely. Um, automation, I mean, as part of that operational uptime, you know, that 99% uptime assurance, automation is kind of stapled. I mean, it's to the whole program. I mean, if you look at where our, our, our big trademark well that I talked about is coming online, it's call it three, three and a half hours West driving of Midland. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so that's, that's it's not one. really accessible by, you know, anyone in it. And it's good old Pecos territory way past it. Yeah. Is it I mean, past it? Oh gosh. Yeah. I mean, we are is that way, close to like, West of West New of Mexico West border? of Orla, yeah. So it's if you guys are familiar with Texas geography, which I'm sure you are. You're you're good I'm from good I'm from West Texas. So. Good Texas citizens, you know the Guadalupe's. Yeah. So we are up against the Guadalupe's that that high peak. Wow. That basically That's divides far. El Paso from the world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so some guys actually have been flying into El Paso and driving and the other driving, way. It's the yeah, same. Driving east. It's the same, and it's actually a little quicker and. It's it's mountainous, but yeah. much safer in terms of you're not driving on that highway 285, which is really yeah, scary. 285 is a death trap. It is. Yeah. And, and so, um, yeah. So back to the question, technology. Uh, I I try to be careful because I can be perceived as a cynical, like non-technology guy. Just believer. But I was that guy. I was <laughs> the enthusiast. Believer. <laughs> yeah. So like ten years ago, I was. I was just like technology, this and you can't come on an oil and gas startup show. And <laughs> yeah, be like, nah, yeah. Talk, technology <laughs> not using it. Well, it, know your audience. I, mean, I had an interview for a magazine the other day, and they're like, "Is technology important in your business?" I'm like, "No." Next question. No, <laughs> no but it really is. It's just that is it novel? I, I wouldn't call it novel, but it's it's pretty incredible. I mean, the, the kind of things we're doing and setting up remote control rooms, and I mean, it's it's all industrial IoT. Yeah. Techno I mean, it's that's what we're using. The same stuff that they would use in a in a downstream facility traditionally, though, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. you wouldn't consider it high tech, but it really is. I mean, if you go into a a DCS that runs an entire refining plant, I mean, you're just going to be blown away. Yeah, we're we're taking that approach. Um, the remoteness of the of the work is is very challenging. It's dangerous um, and 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 risky due to downtime. And so, um, 
we we have it's just redundancy after redundancy and then we rely on technology to basically i mean we, we can see at any time and we we just built a new office as, as did you guys and so i think there's i think we had nine or ten you know big screens that, that they were installing today and you know those are going to be on cameras and on data feeds and on tank levels and valve yeah. positions and it's going to be your command center yeah it's it's, a re it's really neat but when it comes to like drilling the well and stuff i mean you know that they've that's that has evolved so fast like how you know efficient drilling is and <laughs> yeah i i think about you know i started off on drilling rigs and just where i started off 10 years ago to the wells that we drill today it's um, unbelievable is, is there any because i don't actually know the answer to this question is there any difference between drilling an oil well and a water well no drilling is drilling just it's completely the same it's it's completely the same um we're using a very large rig uh, much larger than you would use for a horizontal well today and you know uh, your average Wait, did you say much larger yeah thing? really yeah so I'm, I'm not a drilling expert but i think it's a so you, you do your your pound yeah casing pounds right on the on the rating of the size of the rig so this yeah. is a million and a quarter damn pound and our our tubing is seven inches is it really the injection tubing how so, how deep is this well that you guys are are drilling what's uh, the you know getting close to around fifteen thousand feet so close to three miles deep yeah and your your surface hole i think is not not that that's a really measure of what your casing program looks like but I mean, we're hanging it. It's a, it's a million pounds of casing, yeah. essentially. Not, well, that's what we were talking on Twitter the other day because a lot of people don't know this, but drilling limit, is really limited mostly by mechanical limitations of a rig. And they had this uh, this uh, schematic from Shell. I don't know if you saw it, Jake, but essentially they are drawing this uh, horseshoe mm -hmm. well. So they had... They had a pad with three horizontal wells, but instead of drilling all three horizontal wells, they just decided, hey, we're just going to drill this one, and then we're going to make another bend and come back and drill. And I saw that the other day. Yeah, yeah. and I was like, shit, man, we could do this all day if you just retrofitted some of those jack-up rigs out in the in the shelf of Gulf of Mexico. You just retrofit and bring them onto land, and as long as we have enough mechanical capacity to hold enough pipe. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, a million pounds of casing string weight, that's what you see offshore so that's, yeah and, that's, and uh, our company men are offshore drillers like are they? <laughs> yeah so we've been really selective in how we handle this it's just it's this this well you, you talk about your, your average disposal well call it is you know 10 15 25 yeah. barrels a day i mean this is a hundred thousand barrel a day well and so that's everything crazy. is bigger everything is heavier everything is that, is that y'all's plan moving forward is that going to be kind of a new standard or is this kind of a one-off thing um <laughs> <laughs> i would say that uh we're gonna do it as much as we can yeah we're, we're, when and wherever we can as much as much as the the state will allow yeah you to exactly yeah. ryan sinton's coming on the show next month so we'll put in a good word for you to keep approving <laughs> permits for you how many h pumps does a facility like that to put down a hundred thousand barrels a day i mean yeah, I I imagine that'd be quite a bit I of pumping i power. think with 100 percent redundancy we were at like uh, eight or 12. Jeez. You know, it's yeah, like, I was gonna it's say about 10 pumps. Would yeah. Seem about right. Yeah. It's going to yeah. be a hell of electricity bill. And we were talking about, <laughs> yeah. so, so I don't know if you've seen energy fan to it. Everyone, all our listeners are probably tired of me talking about it, but yesterday we were having this conversation about saltwater disposal wells, because I don't know if you saw this article that came out for Rolling Stone a few months ago about radiation levels and brine. And 
I just saw it for the first time. Most of us on Twitter just saw it for the first time. So we were talking a lot about it. But what I thought was weird about the story was they were talking about this saltwater disposal uh, driver pulls up to the SWD facility. And as he pulls up, there's a guy walking around uh, with a, a Geiger uh, counter and, you know, he's measuring radi radiation and he's like, oh shit, this is the hottest load I've seen. And I, I just thought it was weird because why is this guy walking around measuring radiation? I've never seen that before. And so I was asking people on Twitter, is like, is it regulated? I mean, do you have to, do you have to measure how hot a load is every time? You know, why was this guy walking around? And anyways, people were telling me, no, it's not regulated. But when you have to dispose of the tanks, you have a lot of buildup in the bottom of the tanks. And so if there's a uh, any natural occurring radiation in the bottom of the tank has to be disposed of. Do you see that being a, I mean, the article was pretty damning in itself. It, I was, mean, it, sounds it, was, like, it was incendiary. Well, I, well, look, like I spent a good portion of my life fucking covered in brine because we used to drill our intermediate <laughs> section with brine water on the so rigs. Much. Yeah. <laughs> 10 years ago, I haven't had anything no, happen. I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> I have this third eye growing out of my forehead, but other than that, I'm good. I mean, is there any real concerns with that? I mean, obviously, you're probably going to be biased to the question, but, I mean, is it something that you should really have to watch out for, or was it a hit piece from Rolling Stone? I'll be objective, right? So there's always concern, right? Like, safety, you know, uh, becomes first. It always does in this yeah. business. It always has. So, you know, those are those are valid things to raise as concerns. Um, and because they're concerns doesn't mean that they are valid concerns. Yeah. Right. So there, there's a difference and, and data is how you validate concerns. And so from all my experience, I, I've never heard of, of water, the produced water itself being uh, at a level of radioactivity beyond that of, you know, your, of a banana. The, the head, or yeah. The headphones yeah, that yeah, we're wearing. Yeah. Or, you know, or, probably, the, or the cell phone that we have. I think they door. used banana in the, yeah. in the article <laughs> as an example. My boss said it's less radioactive than banana as he eats a banana. <laughs> And his truck. Uh, well, you know, first off on that, like one, we want to get trucks off the road. We built pipes. Yeah. You know, so get rid of the trucks and, and you're going to have less exposure of humans to, to potential risk. Yeah. But I, I've never heard of, of produced water. Now, it's, it is regional, as they mentioned in the article. They're, they're fair to that point that, you know, this, this particular area of the Utica. Yeah. Utica uh, may to be, be higher. radioactive. Yeah. Um, yeah. But from, from all my experience, which my entire life and career has been dedicated to understanding produced water. It is like you, like you mentioned in the tank bottoms, it's basically when, when radioactivity is an issue, it's because it's, you've got it accumulated in some kind of solid waste. Yeah. And so there are plenty of regulations on how you dispose of solid waste. That's yeah. radioactive. Right. So that's, that's actually like, you know, oil and gas has like a scheduled waste exemption where, you know, solid waste from oil and gas can, can be landfilled. Um, but there, there are requirements that if, if that waste were radioactive, then all of a sudden there's a, you've got a radioactive waste disposal requirement. Yeah. I have a friend that has a company that does that in North Dakota for, you know, that type of solid waste. But, um, I'm sure that becomes a problem for you guys too. You know, if someone tries to bring solids to your facility or drilling mud, I mean, one, it jacks up your pumps, I'm sure. But then you also have that issue of where well, you've got. Yeah. And that's why you want to avoid trucks altogether, right? You get a pipe. Yeah. You always know it's coming through you're, it. You're making a good case for the pipelines here. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and nothing against, you know, trucking companies or you may interview folks that are on it and, you know, they're improving, but, you know, 
for us, like, you know, pipelines just are so much, it's, it's lower LOE, better costs, less yeah. damaging to the environment, less dangerous, you know, the trucks on the road are yeah. a lot of what makes it dangerous, but that's so, what makes 285 a death trap. So, your, your so water this, haulers and sand, sand haulers, <laughs> this particular driver, nothing against him. Um, that is sampling and keeping all these radioactive quote unquote samples in his woodshed in case something happens one day yeah. <laughs> was, was, was really incendiary by the Rolling Stone and, you know, well, feel, like, I, I they, they like can call entire... me for comment if they, if they hear about this, but I, I was like, come on guys, that is a stretch. Like, like the, you know, the entire story just seemed like a hit piece. I'm like, okay, this, well, if it started off with the guy measuring the truck with a counter, I was like, why is he, why is he doing that? I've never seen anyone. I mean, I don't have a lot of experience at SWD facilities, but I've been around brine and water haulers a lot. I've never seen someone walking around a truck me measuring radiation. So from the very first par paragraph, I was like, okay, this, this seems odd. And then the guy's storing water that he's hauling, you know, just in case, like you said. Yeah. I mean, it's it like, a, it's like, come on. Was, I mean, it was interesting, but the water itself, I mean, it, you know, one, you know, stop trucking it. Don't expose yourself to it yeah. individually. <laughs> and, and, and two, it's, it's, I've never heard of a case where oil, you know, produced water from, from oil and gas production is yeah. itself. The water has been radioactive. There's actually, and, and I'm not a, like a, I'm not a scientist when it comes to radioactivity, but the way I understand it, and you guys fact check this maybe for next episode or something, <laughs> but like, you know, a, a, a certain amount of radioactive material registers at a, at a low level. But when you build that up, it's a nonlinear increase in the amount of radioactivity. Mm. So like if you've got a pound of radioact slightly radioactive solid waste that's been aggregated from produced water filtration yeah. and or you've got a thousand pounds, it's not that same, same level of, of yeah, it's not that yeah. same level of radioactivity. It actually compounds on itself in some way. Yeah. Um that makes sense. Yeah. I'm so. not a I'm not an expert in radiation, so I'm not gonna comment the, on it. For but. the listener out there that is a radioactive scientist. You know the water hauler from the rolling the water hauler from the Rolling Stones get, listening to you right I, now. I hope I, don't, I hope I don't get like hate mail from <laughs> from trucking companies and from you know oh, truck drivers right. in Ohio. Yeah, no, it's just interesting because we were talking about that yesterday and it came up to mind while we we're sitting here. I was like, oh shit, we were just talking about SWD facilities and that and that issue. So I thought I'd bring it up, but yeah, he made a. Was a good salesman there bringing up a business development case of like, yeah, just get rid of the trucks altogether. Use our pipelines. If you need pipelines, call 1 800 Black Resources. <laughs> <laughs> well, Justin, man, this show has been awesome. Uh, if guys want to reach out to you, if anyone listening wants to reach out to you, I'm sure you guys have a website. That's right. Uh, what's, what's the URL to the website? It's uh, www.blackbuckresources.com. Awesome. And then are you on LinkedIn? I am. Yeah. So you can find me on LinkedIn. Justin right. Love, L-O-V-E, not Love. <laughs> Justin Love. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. So if you want to find Justin, um, we'll put links uh, to Black Buck's website in the uh, show notes and a link to his uh, LinkedIn. Justin, thanks for coming on the show, man. Thank, thank you guys so much for having yeah, me. I really bud. enjoyed it. It's great. Yep. All right, Love guys, uh, this episode is going to go out uh, probably tomorrow. So if you're going to be in town for NAEP, uh, February 6th, 6 p.m., us and a bunch of other energy tech uh, startups uh, have gotten together. We've rented out BBVA Dynamo Stadium. 
uh, and we were having Wade Bowen play live. It's going to be a huge party. We're expecting somewhere between 1,500 to 2,500 people. We still have, we're still gathering all the RSVPs. They're kind of just flying in. This is invite only, so please go to uh, the link that we'll put in the description. It's actually digitalwildcatters.com forward slash NAPE after party 2020. Once again, the link's going to be below. Uh, if you like the show, please share it with your friends, leave a rating and review, and we'll catch you guys on the next episode.